My name is Floyd, and if you're new here, I do the majority of the teaching and preaching. We're working our way through the book of 2 Samuel right now. Before we get into that, would you just bow your heads with me, and, um, and let's pray again. Lord, um, again, it is with a deep sense of, of need and, um, and a sense of your spirit moving that we pray. I think of the words of the old Anglican prayer, um, what we know not teach us, what we are not make us, and what we have not give us. Amen. If we get into the story of David and Absalom, um, if you've been attending here, you know that we're kind of in the middle of a difficult season in the story of David, a difficult spot. David's throne has been overthrown by his son Absalom. It's in the process of being overthrown, and Absalom is, um, is coming into Jerusalem as we enter the text in verse 15 of, of chapter 16 in 2 Samuel. Before we get into the text, I want to just kind of take care of a couple things um, and a couple names. There's a name that's going to come up, um, Absalom. That's David's son. He's the rebellious one. If you've been paying attention, hopefully you know that. There's another name that's going to come up that you may not be quite as familiar with. His name is Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, um, we are introduced to him in chapter 15. He's one of David's close friends and advisors. And if you read Psalm 55, Psalm 55 talks about David's response to realizing that one of his closest friends had turned on him. In Psalm 55, David says, it's not an enemy, it was my friend that turned on me. And David's really heartbroken over the fact that Ahithophel has turned on him. Ahithophel was a close friend of David's. He was an advisor, as we're going to see in the text in a little bit. His words were considered so wise that people considered it as though God himself was talking. And Ahithophel has turned on David. If you remember in chapter 15, as David is leaving Jerusalem and he's heartbroken, it describes him as barefoot and weeping with his head covered. And one of the things that David prays during his exit of Jerusalem is he said, Lord, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And I want you to remember that prayer of David. Turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Because we're going to see God answer that prayer in today's text. And there's a third person. His name is Ushai. And we're going to see him. Also in chapter 15, we're introduced to him. He's not from Jerusalem. He's from another region. But he leaves. He wants to go with David when David is exiting Jerusalem. And David tells Ushai to stay in Jerusalem as a double agent. He doesn't use the term double agent, but that's what he's asking. He's like, he's, he understands that Ushai is, is also an advisor, that Ushai will be loyal to David, and so he asks him to stay in Jerusalem and pretend loyalty to Absalom in order to serve the purposes of David. So you got Absalom, David's son, Ahithophel, the, the friend and, and counselor who betrayed David, and Ushai, who is the double agent. And hopefully you're able to remember who these people are. This story unfolds with counselors who are competing for their voices to be heard with Absalom. Now we live in a day of 
constant advice, constant competing counsels, constantly people who are telling us what they think we should know and what's important to them for us to know. Some of the voices that we listen to should probably be shut out, and some of them that we shut out should probably be listened to at times. But there's no shortage of voices. I was reflecting over the most influential voices in my life this week. Um, One of them passed on Friday. I'd never met him in person. I'd seen him in person once. Um, His name was Tim Keller, just a wonderful pastor and author from New York. And And I was just reflecting on how much his ministry affected me personally, in spite of the fact that if I had walked up and said, hi, my name is Floyd, he'd have said, great. He he had no context, um, wouldn't have known who I was. Some of the other people who have counseled and been trusted voices in my own heart and life have been dead for years. But then some of them are alive, and I have a, a good relationship with them. And that's kind of the range of counselors, isn't it? We live in a day where we can get advice and counsel from people who may have been dead a generation ahead of us. And we can also get counsel from people who are around us. But it's incredibly important that the wisdom that we build our lives on is in harmony with the wisdom of God. And that it comes really from God working through His people. But this issue of competing counselors is an issue that all of us are dealing with. And I want to get into the text quickly here. Um, We're going to pick it up in chapter 16, and I'm not going to read every verse, but I'd like to get all the way through chapter 17. Chapter 16, verse 15. Now remember, we're going to see these these names come up. Yushai, David's friend, double agent. And that's the first scene. Absalom, verse 15, now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. So that's the, that's the, the friend that betrayed. Verse 16, and when Ushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Ushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Ushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Ushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. So Ushai is making a very convincing case. Absalom's aware of the situation. He's asking, why didn't you stay with my father? Because he understood that Ushai was loyal to, to David. And Ushai says, no. And he makes the convincing case. He's like, I think the Lord has chosen you, and now I'm going to be loyal to you. And he's declaring his loyalty. He's doing exactly what David had told him to do in chapter 15. If you go back to chapter 15, this is exactly what David asked Ushai to do. He said, Declare your loyalty to Absalom so that you can be an inside voice. And what what Hushai is doing in this moment is not an act of treason. It is an act of loyalty to David, and it becomes incredibly useful after that. If you go to verse 20, 
Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear, will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Kind of an interesting twist to the story, isn't it? Where Ahithophel, this man who had just got done saying his counsel was esteemed as though it were equal to the word of God by both David and Absalom, is now advising Absalom to violate his father's concubines, which A, was against the law, and B, was incredibly disrespectful to his father. And if you remember a couple chapters ago, David had left his concubines um, there and at, the, uh, at Jerusalem to kind of take care of the house. And so now Absalom, in the sight of all of Israel, is defiling them. And Ahithophel is really the master planner behind this. If you go to chapter 17, and I'm not going to, for the sake of time, just not going to read the first 14 verses, but it raises an interesting situation because what happens next is that there's competing counsels in the next 14 verses. Ahithophel advises Absalom to strike quickly. And he's like, let's go after David right now. They're on the run. They're physically weak. They're tired. Let's go get him. And Absalom turns to Hushai, who, if you remember, is the double agent. And Hushai says, let's, let's just wait just a little bit. Let's amass an army so large. And his reason for giving this counsel, he says, is he says, David is so smart. He says, David's a man of war. And he says, if you go after him right now, David will be hiding in a cave, and he'll have his best guys out front, and you're going to attack them during the night, and you're going to lose some men in the process. And when that begins to happen, those men are going to think that God is still with David, and they're going to flee, and you're going to wind up losing this battle. And that's Hushai's argument. What he's really doing is he's stalling. He's trying to stall for time for David because he's trying to create a window of time for David to create more space between him and Absalom who's eventually going to pursue him. So Hushai gives this counsel that's actually not in the best interests of Absalom, but Absalom actually listens to it and he takes the counsel. Hushai says, let's build a massive army. Well, he's not, really he's not really concerned about the size of the army. He's concerned about giving David and his men time to get away. That's verses 1 to 14. And when we find ourselves in verse 14, and I think it's worth noting, it says in verse 14, it says, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Now, what did we just read about Ahithophel? that his counsel was the word of God. Now, Absalom and the men of Israel are saying, Hushai's counsel is actually better than Ahithophel's. 
And then it says, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Let me say that again. For the Lord had ordained. Who's working here? Who are the, the players are Absalom, Ahithophel, and Ushai, right? But who, who's really at work? It's God. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel. And the narrator acknowledges that the counsel of Ahithophel was probably a better counsel. But the sovereign hand of God stepped in and took over, defeats the counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom for his rebellion. If you go on, chapter 17, verses 15 to 22, Hushai takes advantage of the window of time that he's created for David. He sends men to warn David. The men, without going into a lot of detail, the men were discovered as spies. Um, They were hidden in a well. They managed to escape, and they managed to get to David and give him the news that Absalom is pursuing him. And David picks up, and away he goes to create more space between him and Absalom. It says um, in verse 22, it says, By daybreak not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan, and that's of David's people. So they all got across the River Jordan during the night, and they created some space. They got the river between them and Absalom. We want to pick it up in verse 23 because something very interesting happens with Ahithophel. In verse 23, it says, When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city, he set his house in order, and he hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. It's quite an ending to a story, isn't it? There's Ahithophel. He's competing for the heir of Absalom as his counselor. And something about the rejection of his counsel was so devastating to him that he says, I have no reason to live anymore. He says he went home, set his house in order, and he hung himself. Do you think maybe it was a little too important to him that his counsel was followed? Do you think he had an overinflated view of his own wisdom? I doubt he started that way but it sure seems like he ended that way. Verse 24, David came to Mahanam, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. So now we see Absalom in pursuit. And now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother, and Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Verse 27, when David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Reba of the Ammonites, and Mankir, the son of Amel from Lod-Debar, and Barzillia, the Gilead, Gileadite from Rogalim. I really wish somebody else would try reading these names. <laughs> <sighs> these are all foreign people. I, I could have just said that. Like, these are all foreign people. But look at what they did. Verse 28, 
They brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And here's all these people. They're not even Israelites, but they're people who David has established friendships with. Um, one of them, by the way, the, uh, the Makar, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, was mentioned earlier as the person who was taking care of Mephibosheth. You remember Saul's grandson that had the lame feet? This is the guy that was taking care of Mephibosheth until David brought him into his courts. And so something about that transaction had established a relationship, and he's one of the men who comes and ministers to David and his people in the wilderness and brings them food and rest because they're weary. And that's as far as we're going to go with the text this morning. But I want to draw some lessons from this. I want to draw some lessons about this issue of counsel and the wisdom that comes with it. Because Absalom is in a, a spot where he really needs to know what happens next. He's in a spot where his strategy is going to either make or break him. Everything is very tenuous at that point. He's in a vulnerable spot. If his insurrection succeeds, he's going to be the king of Israel for a while. If it fails... He'll probably die. He would deserve to die. So he's at a place where he needs to know what step should I take next? He's needing wisdom. He's needing counsel. Now, hopefully, none of us are ever placed in the position of Absalom where we're leading a coup or an insurrection and we're needing advice to know what to do next. But needing wisdom is a constant issue in our lives. It's constantly there. What day do you wake up and not need God's wisdom? When do you live and not need the wisdom of God? We need it constantly. There are always unknowns. At any given point, any given day, there's unknowns. And we're always completely dependent on God's wisdom. Lesson number one that I want to point to, wisdom is lost in bitter motives. There are motives going on that cloud the truth and the wisdom of God to be discovered. Because of the bitterness and the revenge that is driving Absalom, he can't even see what is obvious in front of him. Now, interestingly enough, I did not know this about Ahithophel until just this week. Ahithophel, because I've always wondered, I've known about Ahithophel, but I've always wondered what motivated David's close friend. You know, in Psalm 55, he describes Ahithophel as the one who, he says, we used to take sweet counsel together. I didn't know until this week that Ahithophel is a grandfather to Bathsheba that Bathsheba, the woman that David committed adultery with and then had her husband killed, her grandpa was watching. And he's in the difficult position of being a friend of David while he's abhorred or dismayed by what David is actually doing. Ahithophel might be a case study in bitterness in what happens to a person who gives themselves over to unresolved 
bitterness, an unresolved conflict. Listen, all of us have hurts in our lives. People hurt us. People say things and do things that hurt us. If we carry that and we insist on holding on to the wounds and the hurts and refuse to forgive, we hold on to the very toxin that will destroy us. And that toxin is the bitterness. And if we think for a minute that we can live with wisdom and make good choices and see clearly and hold on to bitterness at the same time, we're kidding ourselves and we're only deceiving ourselves. Ahithophel, I understand that it must have been painful to watch happen to his granddaughter what happened. He had to have been a normal grandparent who just wanted the best for his children and his grandchildren. That's all you or I would want. And what he didn't envision was his close friend David, who he loved, taking advantage of his granddaughter, who he also loved, and her husband, whom he also probably loved. And seeing that story play out the way that it did. And so while David clearly felt betrayed by Ahithophel, it's quite likely that Ahithophel at one point felt betrayed by David. But Ahithophel's carrying it. And he's not ready to let it go. And so the very, this unresolved anger and toxic unforgiveness clouds his ability to actually see with wisdom. And it creates a problem because before this, he was actually known as a very wise person. I mean, the text describes him that way. He's known to be a wise person. What happened? What happened was that he gave himself over to bitterness to treason. Wisdom is lost in bitter motives. You and I cannot afford to carry the hurts of the past. Oh, believe me, I know they hurt. And I also know firsthand that it's usually not a very, um, it's not something you do glibly. Like it's not like you just say, well, I choose to forgive. Now I'm good. Times we work through it and we wrestle through it. Um, been there and continue to be there at times. Times when we've needed and we need to just forgive what was clearly wrong. God's not asking us to say it's okay. It may not have been okay. It may have been absolutely wrong. The other person may have wounded us deeply. But forgiveness looks like turning. It in giving it over to the hands of God and saying, God, you deal with this. It's not my job to take care. It's not my job to execute revenge. I can't, I can't do revenge. I can't be the one in charge of revenge. I can't walk around executing revenge on that person in my head in wishful thinking. It will eat away at my soul and it will rob me of the ability to see life and to live life with clarity. Secondly, wisdom begins with God. I 
think the reference to Ahithophel's advice and his counsel as being as though God himself had spoken as an acknowledgement that that's really where Ahithophel's wisdom had initially come from, but he seems to be unaware of it. He seems to not understand that it was never really his wisdom in the first place. My wisdom and your wisdom, are, are we don't know them. We don't know anything that God didn't show us. You don't know anything that God didn't show you, and neither do I. And Ahithophel's ownership of his wisdom is also an, a step towards his demise. His choice to own and be identified by his wisdom and his smarts or his advice, his counsel, is a giant step to his own demise. One of the most difficult things, if you're a parent, you know this, but one of the... I experience this constantly. You give somebody advice and you tell them what you know they ought to do and then you step back and watch them do the exact opposite. That's so fun, isn't it? What's really fun is when that person then comes back later and is experiencing all the painful results of the choices they made that were in direct conflict to the counsel you gave them. And they say, help now. And what we do in that moment says a lot about where we think our counsel comes from. One of the things I've had to learn the hard way is not to take stuff like that personally. To give it as the best I know how by direction of the Spirit of God and to say, here's what I think. Pray about it. Think about it. If you choose to go a different direction, I'm going to try really hard not to take it personally because it's not my wisdom. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I am convinced that's true. That where you take a person or a society and you remove the fear of the Lord from that person or the society, you will also see Darkness and foolishness come at the same rate that the fear of the Lord departs. We're watching it happen in our own culture. We're watching what has happened with, us, with several generations who were told that there is no divine creator that placed you here. Your life has no purpose outside of the days that you exist here on earth. And if we keep telling our children, I say we as a culture, I'm not telling my kids that, but if the culture continues to tell them that your wisdom comes from some other place, then the fear and the awe of an almighty God, we will see an increase of foolishness. It will happen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to disregard God is a choice to move towards darkness and foolishness. And it should not surprise us if people or societies or groups of people who no longer reverence God are also foolish. And it shouldn't be a surprise. Wisdom begins with God. 
Third point, wisdom triumphs over evil. I love verse 14 where it says that the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. God defeated the counsel of Ahithophel and he did this sovereignly and it's like he's working behind the scenes. Now this sort of raises the question, does that mean then that Ahithophel had no choice in the matter? Does this mean that Absalom had no choice in the matter? What about Ushai? Were they just puppets that God was sort of moving around? Was he the one in charge here? Or were people in charge? And if you think for a minute that on May, what is this, the 21st, 2023, that we're going to answer that question that the Christians have been wrestling with for the last 2,000 years? I'm not smart enough. But I know that those men made their choices and they experienced the consequences. And because the Bible says it, I also know that the sovereign hand of God was at work. I know that both of those can exist and they don't have to make sense in my head that he can work all of that out. That somehow, somehow God ordained that this council would end up working against Absalom and God is at work in behind all of that. And I've taken an immense amount of comfort in that. That even though people will continue to make evil choices foolish choices, that it will never become more powerful and mightier than the counsel and the wisdom of God. That God at any point can take what the enemy means for evil. Remember Joseph telling his brothers, you remember? He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Those stories exist all the way through Scripture. Times when it looks like things are going horribly wrong. Feels like evil is taking over. The darkness is winning over the light. And then you begin to realize, oh my goodness, the sovereign hand of God has been behind this all along. And he will take the worst situations and use them for his glory and for his good. And it reminds me of another passage. It's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And this is in the context where Paul is talking about this gospel that he came and he preached to the Corinthian church. And you could take the word wisdom, by the way, on, on that list, and you could replace it with the gospel, and it would still fit. And Paul is telling the Corinthian church, he's like, I came with this gospel that I told you, the gospel, the simple gospel, that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came, and that he lived as a man, that he died as a perfect man for your sins and for mine, that he forgives us, he offers us the forgiveness of our sins, and that he was placed in a tomb, but he didn't stay in the tomb, that he rose again the third day, that he would give us new life. That's the glorious gospel that Paul kept telling the Corinthian church. Now somebody's actually it was Tim Keller that said this, uh, the guy that I just referred to a little bit ago. 
He said, now, if you, if you want to feel really bad about yourself as a pastor, ask people in your church to describe the gospel. And I've thought about that a lot. And it is actually important to me that, that if you're attending here, that you are able to define what the gospel is. And I just define it in a few words. Sinful men forgiven and redeemed by Jesus on the cross and given a new life at the resurrection. This is the good news. And Paul shared this good news with the Corinthians, but it was so simple. And so other people were coming in, gifted orators, people who were like, yeah, but I have this really amazing thing that you need to know in order to really truly be godly. People with all their formulas, their ideas, and they were coming into the Corinthian church, and Paul is telling them, no, he says, you got to stay with the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that he offered us the forgiveness and the restoration to God through his sacrifice on the cross. That truth, he's like, you got to stay with that. He's like, I know it seems simple. And he, and he gets to this part, and he says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And then he says, and none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Isn't that fascinating? Now, commentators don't necessarily know for sure who he's referring to when he says the rulers of the ages. Some people think he's referring to the, you know, Herod and Pilate and the Jewish leaders. Some people think he's referring to uh, in the demonic spiritual realm. I think it's possible that he uses that terminology because he wanted to refer to both of them. Because that places, Paul does refer to the demonic world as rulers of the age, and in other places he refers to physical rulers as rulers of the age. So, we don't know. I think it's possible he's referring to both. But that's not really the point. The point is that while they were doing their evil deeds... They did not understand that God was at work and that he was unfolding the plan of redemption of glory for you and I, and that he was unfolding the truths of the gospel. He's like, this is the wisdom of God compared to the wisdom of men. And this is in the context of his comparison of the competing councils. In this context, it's men versus God. Are you listening to God's wisdom or are you listening to men's wisdom? And that brings the sermon in the sentence. The counsel of God's word, his spirit, and his people will help us live as wise people in a foolish world. And I want to just camp on that for just a moment because I want you and I to stop and honestly ask ourselves this question. Where is my wisdom coming from? Where is my counsel? Who do I listen to? Who are the trusted voices? Where do I go first? for direction. When you need counsel, well, first we go to Google, or if you're worried about you know, them spying on you, go to DuckDuckGo or one of the others. <laughs> um, then, because we don't really find great answers there, you might ask some questions. Jump on social media and ask the question. You know you're going to get tons of wisdom there. <laughs> How many times have we run all over the place for wisdom? Even, even into counselors' offices, and I'm not against counseling. But looking to a person 
to provide what only God can provide. And I wonder sometimes if God isn't saying, why don't you get on your knees and say, Lord, I trust your guidance. I trust you to give me the direction for the next step. Like, what, yeah, but what if, what if it's about money? He can help you. What if it's about dating or having kids or what to do with the kids that I have? He can help you. What if it's my career? He can help you. Again, to quote Keller, I'm, you know, I'm happy to quote him as much as possible because uh, I've thought a lot about him, but he says God's guidance is as much about what he has done as it is about what he is telling us. And here's what he means by that. We tend to want God to just tell us to take the next step while we're not looking at what he's already doing and what he has done. And sometimes, if you kind of want to know the direction you're headed, you actually need to just turn around and look at where the path was. It's, it's like if you've ever trailed a wounded deer. Most of you probably haven't, so this is bad analogy, but I'm just going to tell you, tell you it anyway. You kind of want to tie flagging along as you find drops of blood because you can turn around, you can see what direction it's headed. Like you get some sense of direction based on what has already happened. And sometimes, instead of just looking at what God is currently doing, where did he place you? Who are your friends, your church, your family? What's happening right now in your life that you can see the sovereign hand of God at work? Can you interpret and understand that as part of his guidance? Do you pray? You trust the Holy Spirit. Say, Lord, I'm going to read your word. I want to be in the word. I want to know your word. I want the Holy Spirit to guide me. I want you to direct me. Open my eyes to the things that I don't see right now. I'll listen to the trusted voices. God puts people in our lives, and he wants to guide us. He wants to direct our steps. But times like Ahithophel and Absalom were so consumed with our own stuff, our own junk, unresolved issues, stuff that we're carrying, we can't hear the wisdom of God. We open his word and we don't get anything out of it because it's boring compared to what's on our phones. We pray, and it seems like there's just nothing there, so we give up on prayer. Maybe it's because we're not convinced that God's wisdom is literally the only reliable wisdom. That it's God's word alone that can direct our paths. And if I'm not convinced, then it dramatically affects the way that I will choose to open myself up to the voices. I'll go everywhere else. We're such microwave people. Man, we want results right now. And God is never in a hurry. And at times we pray, and it just doesn't seem like anything's happening. And we pray. It still doesn't seem like anything's happening. And Jesus said, men ought always to pray, never giving up. But we give up because we're not convinced that it's going to make a difference. Can I ask you, are you convinced that the wisdom of God is superior? Got some deeper study questions.
Are you convinced that the wisdom of God is superior to anybody else's counsel? And how does that affect the way you live your life? Back in the 1800s, you know our country was in a civil war, and Abraham Lincoln was the president. It's a dark time for America. One of the things that fascinates me that Abraham Lincoln did three times during the Civil War, he issued days of humility and fasting and prayer because of what he saw happening in the country. And I came across those recently, and I was, I was just so fascinated by what he said in his proclamations asking people to pray. The first proclamation was, December, was September 26th of 1861. And one of the phrases in his proclamation, he says, in the full conviction, in the full conviction that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, he goes on and he issues his proclamation. What's he saying? He's like, I'm convinced that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that we are in desperate need of wisdom right now. So he says, why don't all America pray, fast, humble yourselves, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a pretty good proclamation. March 30th, 1863, about a year and a half, two years later, he, he wrote in another proclamation, and this one was a proclamation calling America to pray repentance prayers. He's like, we need to repent. We need to admit our wrong and our sin. And he says, we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. That's his prayer of repentance. He's like, you understand what kind of shape we're in? We think that all the blessings that we have are because of our own wisdom, because we're so superior. He says, I think we need to bow our heads and acknowledge that this, all of our blessings come from God. That maybe that's a place to start. Third proclamation, August 4th of 1864, he calls America, and he says, to, again, to prayer and a fast, and he says, he calls America to implore him as a supreme ruler of the world and not to destroy us as a people. And then he gives several reasons, and one of them is that by the obstinate adhesion to our own counsels, don't you love how wordy this is? By the obstinate adhesion, in other words, stubborn, hanging on to our own counsels, which may be in conflict with his eternal purposes. Like, man, we need to pray to God because it's possible that we're so stubbornly hanging on to our own opinions and that we're in direct conflict with God's eternal purposes. And so he says, would all America humble themselves and pray? I think we were probably as a country in need of some more days of humility and prayer again, for sure. But it starts with us in a personal way. Charlie, would you go ahead and come on up? I want to bring this to a close. So my challenge again this morning to you is, where is your wisdom? Where do you turn? Is it as simple as prayer? Do you actually have a spot like Moses' tent of meeting, a place where you know you go and you get before God and you say, Lord, help. I need wisdom. I need to know. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Moses leading, you know, several million people 
who were constantly complaining and grumbling. And if Moses needed to do it, we need to do it. To regularly come before God and say, God, help. I don't know what to do. I put my eyes on you. I trust you for wisdom. Guide me. Your wisdom is better than I'm not even going to turn to anybody else. Even if it takes a while to get an answer, I'm not turning anywhere else, God, because I believe that you have the wisdom for me. Would you bow your heads? Lord, um, right now, somebody, maybe many of us, are here with some unanswered questions and things that we are wrestling through right now. First of all, God, search our hearts. Um, Remove any root of bitterness. Show us if there's unresolved issues and sin that's clouding our ability to hear clearly from you. Lord, convict us of the truth that wisdom begins with you. Make that a deep conviction of our hearts. Convict us of the truth that you have triumphed and will continue to triumph over evil. And give us a heart that trusts you. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.